Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. And I'm going to introduce myself. <laughs> I normally introduce the speaker, but it's me today, so... Um... Hooray. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> he said hooray. Yeah, women do speak, just not very often. <laughs> but not because we can't, just because, uh, yeah, I do lots of other things. But um, anyway, today on Mother's Day, it's a real privilege to be able to speak. Today, we're continuing our uh, passion series, looking at the week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And last week, Simon started the series. Who was here last week? It was a brilliant talk. I hope you really enjoyed getting to know a bit more about the economic and political backdrop of what was going on in that week. And if you missed that talk, I really would encourage you to go back and either watch it on YouTube or catch up on the podcast because it is really interesting. Am I okay, John Mark? Do you want me to stay on this? Is it okay for everyone? Yeah? Okay, great. So I'm picking up the story, and it's two days before the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And just to remind you, Passover was the festival where the Jews remembered the Israelites being freed out of Egypt. And every adult Jewish male was expected to travel to Jerusalem, and some went with their families too, with women and children. So at this this time, the whole area would have been really busy, as Simon explained last week, hustling and bustling, a bit like Glastonbury, everybody with their tents, camping everywhere, um, in all the inns and hotels. They would have all been full because everybody was en masse going to Jerusalem. And as it was fast approaching, um, there was a new urgency to the temple leaders to to sort Jesus out, to get rid of him. They wanted to get rid of him, but he did pose a threat. And at this time, it was quite difficult because it was so busy. It wouldn't have been a good idea to arrest him with all those crowds. Because lots of people thought that he had something to say and they were in awe of him. They thought he was actually the promised Messiah. So to arrest him with all of these crowds would have highly likely incited a riot. So they needed a plan and they needed really someone on the inside. Um, And that's Judas, but we'll come to that in the, the coming weeks. But you get the picture, a very busy Jerusalem. A mass pilgrimage taking place, camping everywhere, people everywhere. And Jesus needs some downtime because he knows what's coming up for him. Well, let's read the scripture and find out a bit more about what's going on um, at this time. We're Mark chapter 14, I think it's going to be on the screens, verse 3 to 9. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now Jesus had gone to Bethany, the place that he returned to again and again, we read in the scriptures. And I like to think of this as his happy place. And we all need one of those, right, don't we? Who's got a happy place? Yeah. 
Well, mine used to be a place called Swanage. We used to go there every single year from when I was born. And then we had children and we went there as a family too. And every time we arrived there as a family and we saw the sea, because we lived in Birmingham, so the sea was quite special. Uh, it still is special, but, you know, it was very special because we only saw it once a year. Um, we got there and I relaxed and we were all like, oh, we're in that happy place. So Swanage was my happy place. But actually now it's here in my home when my kids are back and my grandchildren and that's my happy place. Anyway, I digress. But Jesus was in his happy place. He'd gone to hang out with his closest friends, Simon, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, who who he raised from the dead. And he went to be with the people that he felt safe with. They were like family to him. And we've said many times that being in community is so important for our spiritual well-being and to build us up. And I believe that Jesus chose to go and be with those people at this time because he knew knew that he needed to build strength and resilience into his life at that time. Now, Bethany is a small little place about a mile from Jerusalem and it means the house of affliction or the house of the poor. Historians think that this was one of three places in Israel which were like a modern-day sanatorium, a place of refuge where people could go if they were sick or they were very poor and they would be looked after. They would get money and possibly medical attention. And this is the town that was a special place for Jesus. And I love that, that Jesus loved hanging out with the poor and the poorly, the downtrodden and the isolated people. And on this occasion, we find him in the house of Simon the leper. Now, in those days, people had a name tagged onto their name because there would have been lots of the same name. So, sorry, Simon, there were lots of Simons. There was Simon the sorcerer. We've got another Simon in the room today, haven't we? There was Simon the sorcerer. He was Simon the magician. There was Simon the tanner. He was Simon the man who made leather things. And Simon the leper, uh, the Simon who had leprosy. I mean, not a nice thing, but they did used to tag things onto people's names. Now, we don't know if Simon still had leprosy or maybe he was one of the people who'd been healed by Jesus. But even so, this was a big deal for Jesus to be in this house because the stigma would have carried on. Leprosy was a chronic skin disease uh, caused by a bacterial infection. But because people thought it was really infectious, if you had leprosy, you were really ostracised from society. You were an outcast. In the book of Job, it actually describes leprosy as death's firstborn. Um, in their eyes, leprosy turned you into the walking dead. And if you were a Jew, you would not touch the dead. It would, um, you'd have to do lots of rituals. So to touch a leper made you unclean. So to protect people, lepers were sent away to places so that they didn't have to interact with other people. And if you went into the house of a leper, it necessitated a whole change of clothes and, as I said, lots of rituals. So Jesus choosing to go into this house for a meal reinforces... And and shows us how willing he was to step outside those cultural boundaries and and religious norms of his day. And Jesus was enjoying a meal with his friends. It says in the passage he was reclining at the table. Now they used to eat at like low tables and they would sit on the floor on mats or cushions and would just be like reclining backwards. I don't know if you've ever seen those pictures, but don't imagine sitting around a table with a knife and fork um, on chairs and and a high table. They were sitting on the floor and just reclining around a low table. Now Jesus was a man who liked a meal or two. And throughout the Gospels, we read, don't we, of him sharing so many meals with people, both the orthodox and the unorthodox, and the people who were in favour and those who weren't. And he actually loved eating so much that at one point he was accused of being a drunk and a glutton. So, you know, you can imagine eating for Jesus was where he did his business. 
In the ancient world, food held a really important place. I'm not sure it quite does in the same way today, but to share a table with someone in those days was to show acceptance and was really saying that you are my friends. And during this meal, as they're eating and drinking and chatting away and having lots of fun, they're about to be interrupted. <coughs> Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes up to Jesus and probably from behind as he was reclining, pours perfume onto his head. Now, fragrance oil was used a lot in the ancient world, at least among the moderately well-off. People would anoint themselves on a daily basis using inexpensive perfume, but the more money you had, the more exotic that base ointment would be. But most people just used a fragranced olive oil. And it's a bit like the biblical equivalent of um, aftershave or perfume. And in a world without sanitation, as we learnt last week, how bad Jerusalem was, it would have been very necessary to create some nice smells around. But in this instance, we're told it was a very, very expensive perfume called nard. And this would have been imported from the Himalayan mountains of India, so it travelled a really long way and was very precious. It was the highest-ranking perfume of its day, and many people said it was what you would bring to a king as a gift. And it cost almost a year's wages. It's almost unbelievable when we think about that. Now, in the UK, the average wage at the moment is around 35000 so can you imagine popping into boots and getting a perfume off the shelf for £35,000. I mean, obviously, you can't do that. But um, this was precious, precious stuff. It was likely to have been Mary's dowry, which is a down payment to her future husband's family, or it was being kept for someone's burial. And the kind of perfume like this was kept in an alabaster jar. This was, these were jars with long necks made of stone from the Alabastron region in Egypt. And to get the perfume, the jar had to be broken, the neck had to be snapped to get the perfume out. So when you used the perfume, when you broke the jar, the whole thing had to be used. You couldn't save any of it for later. So on this day, Mary chose literally to pour out her most expensive possession. And I don't believe she just decided to do it on a whim. Like in that moment, I don't think she just popped off to the bedroom and looked around and thought, oh, I'm sick of dusting these perfume bottles. I think I'll, I think I'll just go and smash it and pour it over Jesus' head. I think she really knew what she was doing. She knew what she was going to do. She had a deep love and understanding for Jesus. And we see this through the many stories that are told about her in the Gospels. There was a beautiful relationship between them. She'd sat at Jesus' feet many times as she'd listened and learned from him. She experienced great loss when her brother died and Jesus came to comfort her. And of course, then he raised her brother from the dead. So she would have had immense gratitude towards him. So this moment of anointing came out of deep love, trust and affection for Jesus. And I don't believe it was just impulsive. It was rooted in trust and it was an action of surrender to her friend and her saviour. So as she broke the jar, this fragrance would have, this intense fragrance would have filled the room, overpowering all the food smells that were going on. And you can imagine the indignation rising in the room. The disciples and those around the table were told, questioned why she would do such a thing. They told her off, they chastised her. So why did Mary do it? She knew her place in society for sure. She absolutely knew. And on that day, she would have been there to serve the food, not to be doing that. She knew her place. She knew that what she was going to do would have, caught, would have drawn criticism from the people around them. And I don't think it was just because of the cost. I think it was because she was a woman. And obviously, it's Mother's Day today, and I'm a woman, and I'm speaking, so you'll have to indulge me. But I just want to paint a picture 
of the culture around women in Jesus's day so that you can just see how scandalous this act really was. So the world that Jesus was born into really marginalised women. And I know this happens in other parts of the world, but just to picture where Jesus was at this time. Women were second-class citizens. So the birth of a girl into a family was a huge disappointment. Many women would have grown up knowing their place. And yes, sorry, Mary, says many, Mary, Mary would have absolutely grown up knowing her place in society. She wouldn't have been shocked by the way she was treated. Yes, women could gain a measure of independence. They could work a little bit, but only really if somebody in their family had died and they needed to become the breadwinner. And even then, they would only be set up with a very small business, maybe selling olives in the marketplace. For most women, their role was restricted to the home. That was their place. Women were seen as a bit ditzy, and so they were not the ones there to um, question the rabbis and listen and learn. They were there to look after the men, to cook after them. Women had very few rights. They couldn't testify in court. They couldn't incite divorce only for very small reason of impurity. But men, on the other hand, could divorce women for anything, any reason at all, which is why Jesus actually spoke into that when he was alive, when he was asked the question, to protect women's rights. And women were seen as dangerous because they provoked lust in men, apparently. And in particular, (laughs) their hair was um, a great source of temptation. So that's why women had to cover their hair. And all women would cover it when they went out in public. But some women even covered it in their own home and never, ever showed even their husband their hair. Women were actually discouraged from going out in public, but if they did go out, they would have to have a male escort. And if a woman was in the streets, it was very um, frowned upon if a man approached her and spoke to her. Women were not supposed to be greeted by a man in public. So again, I'm just painting this picture so you can see how Jesus interacted with women. He was really radical in his approach to women. It was quite amazing. He didn't seem to care what the social norm was. He cared more about making women feel valued like he did for so many people that he encountered. And even though it would have been seen as totally inappropriate to touch a woman in public and approach a woman in public and talk to a woman, he approached that woman at the well and had a very long conversation with her. That would not have been allowed in his time. That Samaritan woman also was the first person that he told that he was the awaited Messiah. And Jesus not only had female followers, he allowed them to financially support him as well. In Luke chapter 8, it says, After this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So women followed Jesus and um, made sure he had enough finances and planned where he was staying and all of that kind of thing, which I just think is amazing that that Jesus really trusted women to do that for him. Matthew, Mark and Luke all tell the story of the woman who was bleeding. She'd suffered bleeding for 12 years. Um, She would have been ostracised. That was one of the laws. If you were bleeding, you were unclean. And so for her to come out in public and do what she did, I'll remind you, she pushed through the crowds to touch Jesus' cloak because she believed that Jesus would heal her. That is not a normal thing to do. But rather than shame her, what did Jesus do? He realised something had gone from him and he he said, who has touched me? And this woman threw herself at Jesus' feet and said, it was me. And he just said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. 
He didn't say, you've made me unclean, get off me, sort this woman out. He just treated women so differently. And John tells the story of when Jesus was sitting down to teach in the temple court and some of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees want to trap Jesus. So they bring a woman who's been caught in adultery to him. And they ask what should be done with the woman. But their intention is not really to look after the woman. It's they're trying to trap him. If he, encourage, if he encourages them to let her go, then he's breaking the law. And if he calls for her to be stoned, then it nullifies all the things he's been saying about, you know, being kind and loving one another. It's really interesting to note that the man, who's clearly been having an affair too, was not brought before Jesus at all, just the woman. But Jesus bends down, doesn't he, and starts writing in the sand with his finger while they keep pressing him. And he just doesn't speak and he just writes in the sand. And then he stands up and he says, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, they just start to leave as they realise what they've done. And then Jesus turns to this humiliated woman. I mean, could you imagine the scene? She's been brought to Jesus to be humiliated, to be this woman who's to be scorned. And Jesus says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. So can you possibly imagine how that compassion would have felt to this woman? Not only was she forgiven, but she was also free to go. And she's been spoken to by a man who has told her that. And also the very first people that Jesus spoke to when he rose again were women. And he trusted them to be the ones to tell the story, to pass that on. And again, that was not heard of. You know, like I said, a woman's voice was not trusted and she couldn't testify in court. So for them to be the ones trusted with the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead was quite amazing. And I say all that because I really want to stress that the way Jesus treated women was power empowering and powerful. Women were made to feel safe around Jesus all of the time. They were seen and heard in a culture where they were told to shut up and be quiet and be invisible. He showed the people around him how to respect women and treat them with dignity and tell them they're worthy of honour and he gave them freedom. Jesus valued their fellowship, their prayers, their financial support, their testimony and their witness. And he honoured women and ministered to women very tenderly. And I've only just picked out a couple of stories. He stopped and he spoke to women as he went about his daily life. And he treated women as equals with men. And his countercultural treatment of women was nothing short of remarkable for his day. I know it's easy for us to read the Gospels and just think, yeah, Jesus spoke to that woman and healed that woman. And, but it was so abnormal the way he treated women. And I'm sure this is why Mary had the courage to step out from the cultural boundaries that she'd been assigned to on that day to do something for the man that she loved and classed as her saviour. And in a culture where her words wouldn't have been valued, she used her own vocabulary and performed this amazing act of love and devotion that stopped the men in their tracks. And she let her actions do the talking. Now, Mary had been around Jesus a lot because he'd always welcomed her presence. And I think she'd picked up on what Jesus thought about women. And she'd also picked up on what he thought about actions, speaking louder than words. Throughout his ministry, Jesus constantly wanted to show the Pharisees and the religious leaders that they were missing the point, that the way they were trying to apply the law in their lives wasn't the law of love that he was bringing. I mean, how many times do we read, you've heard it say, but I say... 
meaning you've heard it, you've read about it in the Torah or you've heard it taught in the temple. But I say, I want to tell you a different way of living. But Jesus didn't just go around saying words, did he? He used his actions all of the time. And this is what Jesus was saying through his actions on the day when he was at Simon the leper's house, for instance. You've heard it said that it's really bad to touch a leper. And if you go near them or enter their house, you're going to have to change your clothes and go through multiple cleansing rituals. You'll be unclean. Uh, It's best to stay away. But I say, don't worry about that. These people are treasured and loved by me. They're loved by my heavenly father just as much as he loves you. And they deserve acceptance and tenderness and kindness. Welcome them into your hearts and your homes. Include them in everything that you do. Give them dignity and respect. Can you see the difference? Jesus' actions spoke so loudly against the cultural norms and against the religious laws that they had all been learning and putting into practice. Through everything he did and the way he lived his life, he showed us how to love others. Jesus was always calling people up into this radical lifestyle. And even in the week leading up to his crucifixion, he was at a leper's house breaking social norms and and sitting with people eating and allowing women to have dignity. I wonder, do we have Mary's courage to demonstrate our love for God? to those around us, no matter what the cost? Do our actions speak louder than our words? How often do we just talk about doing good or we sing songs of worship to God and how great he is, but we forget to use our actions in our everyday life and let those speak to the people around us? Mary didn't use her voice, but she demonstrated her love for Jesus through her actions on that day. And I think the world is really tired of words. We have politicians who continually spout rhetoric and yet we see no real change. We've got social media platforms full of words like Twitter, full of hatred and full of opinions and words, words, words. I think what the world is crying out for is love in action, not just words. And as Christians, that's surely where we come in. We want to be people who live authentic lives where the words we say are completely backed up by our actions. I think it's really sad when I hear people talk about hypocritical Christians and I chat to many people who are turned off Christianity because of Christians, which really breaks my heart. They're turned off Jesus because of what Christians say and then not do or even what they say and do. But it's really sad and I don't want Riverside to be that place. I don't want people to say that they don't see the love of God in us and therefore they don't want to love God because why would I if this is the God that you serve? Now Jesus said that Mary would be remembered for her actions and she would be talked about. Well it's great because we're talking about it today so that's true. And I want my actions to be remembered, not what I said in my life but what I did. The changes that I made, the effect I made in people's lives. I want my life to have a substance, not just to be about words. I want to live out of my values. Now, I know that I'm not there, obviously. It's a journey for all of us. But I have to have that daily reminder that I must live out the actions that Jesus talked about and not just be a person who tells others what to do or or speaks about things that I ought to do, but not be the one to do it. 
I must lift up the downtrodden. I must speak to the people that no one else wants to speak to. I must feed the hungry, visit people in prison. Those are the things that I want my life to be marked by, not somebody who just talks and talks. Jesus spoke about our actions and said that when we love others, we are loving him. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the disciples were confused and asked him, Whenever did we do those things for you, Jesus? And he replied and said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So our acts of love for others are actual acts of worship to God. And if if that is an inspiration for us, then I don't really know what is. When we love others, we are worshipping God. Jesus said it, that's the truth. When we help other people, when we lift up those people who the world says you're no good or you don't matter as much as that person over there, when we go to those people, when we show the love of Jesus, we are worshipping God. But back to the story, in that moment, I don't believe there was any fear for Mary. I think Mary knew she would get a telling off. She probably expected it. She knew the men around the table wouldn't be pleased with what she was doing and they wouldn't get it and they wouldn't understand I'm not having a downer on men here, by the way. I'm just quoting the facts of the story. (laughs) But she really didn't care. She didn't care. Something of her relationship with Jesus and the way he treated her emboldened her in that moment. She loved Jesus so much and she saw him. She recognised who he was and what he was going to be doing. And no one else did. She wanted to honour the man who'd done so much for her and her family and for the friends in her life as well. What he'd done for other women, they would have talked about it. She would have seen it as well. And he'd given them value, but she also wanted to anoint him as a king. That's why she wanted to give him her everything, because it came out of the relationship. And that's why she gave him the most treasured possession that she had. What are we bringing to God that is valuable to us? Are the things that we're holding on to because we don't quite trust God? We don't have that relationship. Do we trust God with our money? Have we given him our money or our family or our health or our kids? And that might sound a big thing. When Simon and I were praying about coming down to Whitstable, eight years ago now, can't quite believe it, we decided to come down to Whitstable and pray um, it was for this job particularly, not just coming down to Whitstable. When we were thinking and praying about applying for the job, we decided we would come down and prayer walk the area and just see what we felt and you know see what, where God was leading us. And we'd all planned to come down. And on, on the Sunday before the Monday we were coming down, I had a massive, probably hissy fit really, if you want to call it that. And uh, I said to Simon, we're not going. I just decided that I was not going to leave my three sons behind Obviously, they weren't little, they're grown up, but that wasn't the point. I wasn't going to leave them and live 200 miles away from my sons um, and their future families. And I just said, Simon, I'm not doing it. I can't do it. God would not expect me to do that. Silly, I was having a bit of a moment. Um, And I just said, I can't do it. And we didn't come. We cancelled the trip. We'd got a few days we're coming down here. And I cancelled the trip because I said, I can't do it. And Simon was... Fair but firm. <laughs> and um, I took a few days, but I decided to go and see a friend, who, a really wise older friend. And she, she talked to me quite strongly and firmly as well. And um, 
and just said, you know, your children are an idol and you need to give them up. An idol is basically something we put before God. And at that moment, uh, I don't worship my children. That's not what I'm saying. At that moment, I was saying that what I wanted in my family, which was to be with my children, um, live close, uh, and the rest of my family who all also live in the Midlands, I wasn't prepared to leave that behind in order to pursue Jesus. So I shut the door. And she explained all this to me and said, you know, you really need to give God your children. And through many, many tears and prayer, I actually symbolically lifted them to the Lord. But actually what was going on is I wasn't giving my children to God. And obviously I have an amazing relationship still with them. But what I was saying to God in that moment was, I put you before my desires. I trust you to look after my children. And I trust that you have the plan for my life, our life. And I will put that first. And there was many tears, but I really did business with God. And I knew that an exchange had taken place. And I really did kind of say to God, you can have my desire to live close to my family and I believe God did something in that moment and and really opened the door for us and then blessed us to be able to come here and and yeah and um that's what happened we ended up coming down but at that moment I promise you I was not coming and it was a real tussle and a battle so when God does that I would just encourage you to respond when he's you know talking to you and saying you know you're not trusting with your finances or you know your health is you're not trusting with your health you're putting this before your trust in me then do business with God come before him get someone to pray with you and give it to God whatever it is that you're struggling with to let go because basically letting go is saying I trust you God more than I trust myself we can't ever outgive God either. I know that in that moment, I couldn't outgive God. Once I got myself into that place, I knew that whatever I gave to God, He would give back to me um, in, a, in a different measure. Jesus interprets Mary's act of worship as preparation for His burial. And when the disciples rebuke her for what they see as a complete and utter waste of money, Jesus immediately leaps to her defence like he had done for so many women and responds saying, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. You can help them anytime you want, but you won't always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. Jesus had been speaking about his impending death for quite a long time, but the 12 were having none of it. Sorry, men, but they weren't. The women in Jesus' life were far more intuitive. When Jesus told Peter that the Messiah must be rejected and suffer and die, and then he'd be raised, Peter protested so strongly that Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. In another instance, Jesus spoke of his death being very close and the disciples responded by thinking who would be greatest in the kingdom. And of course, you've got James and John who missed the point entirely on another occasion saying who would sit on his right hand and left hand. And they just didn't get that Jesus was there to to be with them, but also to leave them to die. Clearly, the 12 disciples were were really missing the point and they didn't understand a kingdom that would not begin with Jesus killing enemies, but with the death of their very own friend. And I suspect this is why they complained about the waste of money that they perceived with this perfume, because they imagined that their ministry was going to go on and on with Jesus. And this would have been really important thing to have. When Jesus spoke to them all at the table and defended Mary's actions, I bet you could hear a pin drop. And I hope Mary had a little wry smile on her face as she realised and watched Jesus put them in a place, but she probably didn't because she was very holy, much much more holy than me. I can imagine her just keeping her eyes fixed on Jesus firmly and just continuing in her act of worship. 
I'd actually really heard their shouting and complaining because that wasn't what she was there to do. She was there to worship Jesus. Mary was the one out of all of them that knew what needed to be done in those days leading up to Jesus' death. She knew Jesus was the king. She could see. She'd seen something special. He was different. He was her saviour. And she knew that she wanted to anoint his body. I really believe she knew what she was doing, that none of this was an accident. She was preparing his body for death and burial, which was quite amazing. And she shut out all the noise in that moment, the hustle and bustle of a group of men eating around the table, and she came and brought her worship. I wonder how many of us are so caught up in what we think is important that we miss moments with Jesus. Are we too busy getting on with our own lives that we miss important times to worship Jesus? Are we so preoccupied with doing the right thing that we miss holy moments with Jesus? Do we miss moments to tell God how much he means to us? Do we miss moments to worship him? Do we have other things in our lives that we're worshipping? Mary's dramatic act was more powerful than any words. It so demonstrated her love to her, love for Jesus, her understanding of who he was, why he'd come, what he was going to do for the world, how he was going to save mankind. Do we have that same understanding? And if we do, does it drive us in our life to demonstrate our love for Jesus in everything that we do? If you're able, shall we stand together? the band would come back that would be great I don't know what part of the story has touched you this morning you've probably heard people talk about that story so many times and there's lots of different elements that you could focus on I've just brought a few things up today I want us to give a little bit of time um, just to let God speak to us and highlight maybe something out of the story and as a band player you can either just listen to the song you can just stand in God's presence or sit Uh, you can sing along if you want to that's Um, totally up to you but ask God how you can be more like Mary do you need to let your actions speak louder than the words you say maybe think about how you're going to do that this week how you're going to bring God's love in an action to those around you because remember when you do it's worshipping your father God too Maybe think about those things that you're holding on to. Maybe when I was speaking about what we worship and what we put before, before our love for God, you had a little thought like, oh gosh, I don't think I'm, I think I'm holding on to this and I'm not fully trusting God. Ask God. Maybe you're afraid to surrender those things to God. And are we missing moments because we're too busy? Are we missing those holy moments to be with Jesus because of the noise around us? And I just want to add that Mary had been told her whole life that she was not as important as her brother, as all the men around her. That was the culture she grew up in. She would have been put in her place many times, which is probably why this didn't faze her. And then Jesus, and then Jesus, he came along and he set her free. He told her that she was loved. He told her that she was forgiven. He told her how his father God saw her. And he did that for her, but he did it for so many people and not just women. He gave her a valued place at the table of the Lord. And he wants to do that for all of us today. Whoever you are today, whatever your background, whatever you've done or not done, however you feel, whatever's been told to you, if you've 
if you've been told that you're not worthy, I want you to know today, and God wants you to know that you have an equal seat around the table of the Lord. He says, I hear you, I see you, I love you, you are valued, you are precious. So as we sing this song, or you just want to listen, let God minister to you. We're all on a journey. We're just here to encourage one another to be more like Jesus. But today as well, let's be more like Mary. Let's bring out everything to God. Let's not hold back and let's really think about and reflect how we can have those holy moments, but also those, those demonstrable acts of love this week for the people around us. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.